you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. We will continue this morning unpackaging this important passage, one which really communicates some very profound truths and encouragement to us. We come here this morning as sinners in desperate need of the gospel, even as the redeemed of Christ every day, we have to renew and look to our confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ rather than to our own faithfulness and to our own performance, our own obedience, always looking to the author and finisher of our faith. Our tendency is to stray away from that, so it's a good reminder at times to be taken back to these foundational truths as it relates to the person of Jesus Christ and what is going on in the context of our salvation and the great story related to our salvation, the fact that we have communicated to us here such a profound discourse on the part of Christ as it relates to his relationship with the Father and the plan of salvation, and entrusting that salvation into the hands of Christ is certainly a great encouragement to us, and then the gentle invitation that comes from Christ to us to be constantly resting in him. Um, is so very important, um, and uh, we, we need to be mindful of that. We tend to drift away from those very foundational truths. We are people who like to rest in our own self-worth, our own value, our own, um, our own righteousness, if you will, and this is a good reminder that we need to be focused on Jesus Christ. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get into the passage. Lord, we do love you. We thank you for the fact that you hold us fast, that you will never let us go, that your love is eternal, it's purposeful, um, it can never be broken. Nothing will ever, ever separate us from you. We rejoice in that fact. That's great comfort to us. We rejoice that history is in your hands. We rejoice that salvation is in, our salvation is in your hands, that uh, you have chosen how to reveal yourself and to whom you will reveal yourself. And it confounds the, the wise and the haughty, yet you are gentle and kind to the humble and lowly. We ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive the word. The, the indications today is that people are rejecting the word, that they're turning to themselves, that they're considering themselves to be the source of truth and information and all that is necessary for their own sustainability uh, abandoning the sufficiency of the word. So help us to be mindful of the importance of, of thinking through these things today and paying attention and also uh, attentive to the content, um, looking for uh, information here, Lord, that would give us confidence in the fact that you indeed love us and are keeping us and will preserve us for all the ages. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Somebody get that? <laughs> Timing is everything. Well, Matthew chapter 11, we, are, we read in verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, 
and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Such comforting words, of course, and um, the, uh, the fact that these are recorded for us is for our benefit and, and encouragement. Uh, we've been talking about this passage now for the last couple of Sundays, and we're looking at its meaning and its importance. We understand in looking at verse 25 that there's a praise that issues from, the fa- from Christ to the Father as it relates to um, the Father's control in regards to salvation and how He has planned salvation and the purpose of salvation and how salvation is extended. Ultimately, this reference to praise in verse 25 is important for us because it indicates that we agree with the verdict. Christ agrees with God's verdict in the context of how salvation works and to whom it is extended. And there's a point of praise for that and reflection. Even in verse 26, there's another pause um, of reflection as we consider the fact that the plan of salvation as ordained by the Father through Jesus Christ was well-pleasing to Him. And it's something that is in accordance with his purpose and plan, not man's. And so ultimately, that's what we see here. And we're going to be looking at verse 27. We began to unpackage that last Sunday as it relates to this communication, this discourse that appears to be taking place in regards to Christ communicating what it is that exists between he and the Father. Um, On its face, it's one of those passages that sometimes perhaps we gloss or we may think it's too deep for us to understand or comprehend. But What we're establishing ultimately is that the invitation extended in verse 28 can be extended because of what is taking place in verses 25, 26, and 27. We considered last Sunday the fact that we understand that all things have been given over to Christ by the Father, and we see how then Christ will then exercise the authority that is given to him. We know from the book of Colossians and our study in Colossians that that truth is communicated, that profound truth. passage in in Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15, where Paul communicates the the nature, the extent, the person of Jesus Christ, all that he is, all that he controls, all that the Father has given to him, the fact that reconciliation between us and the Father flows through Jesus Christ. And so this is all attendant with what is being communicated to us here. And for us, it's important to be mindful of that, that we do indeed have a Savior who can save. Jesus is adequate to save. He can wholly save, completely save, fully save, and there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. We cannot forget that. I think oftentimes Christians, even though we call ourselves Christians, Christ ones, often forget the fact that it's all about Jesus Christ. Christianity has been co-opted by so many today to be made into everything that it ought not to be about your prosperity, your self-worth, your self-confidence, loving yourself, finding yourself, embracing yourself, looking to yourself, that we forget that there's someone else in the room named Jesus Christ. And it's really about Him and our placement in Him. What you're being sold today by many as it relates to what the gospel is, is not the gospel. It's a false teaching. It's being promulgated by false teachers, those in error, because they're not focusing on the finished work of Christ. They're causing you to focus on yourself. 
And when you focus on yourself, then you, of course, don't have the gospel. This is why I think the data that we have in the church today about the drift in terms of truth is, is, is present. People aren't being told about Jesus Christ. They're not being driven back into the Word. Pastors don't preach expositorily anymore. It's not verse by verse. It's topical. It's whatever it might be. It's slideshows, smoke screens, fog machines, music, program. But this is the Word of truth. The Bible is the truth, and it contains the words of life. And it's given to us graciously by the Father to understand and to comprehend. And so we see in verse 27, as we go back and consider the ideas that are communicated in this passage, that all things have been handed over to Christ by the Father, that there is an interrelationship between the Father and the Son. The Father is confident in the Son's ability. The Son knows exactly what the Father wants, what the Father requires, how salvation works. This reaches back into the covenant of redemption as it relates to that which was agreed to before the very foundation of the world to bring about the salvation of the elect. This is very important. And so when we begin to think about theology, we begin to think about salvation, it incorporates into it the ideas related to what was agreed amongst the Trinity as it relates to the salvation of God's people. How would that work? Salvation happens in a very specific way. It's not just random and haphazard. It's not uh, some just... Uh, chaotic, cosmic explosion that takes place and results in something. No, it's very specific. And we see here that in the context of this passage, Christ is reflecting in a praiseworthy way. It's a point of, of worship, quite frankly, as it relates to the fact that there is a control, there is a, a principle that governs our salvation, People often say, well, I don't want to hear about doctrine. Don't talk to me about doctrine. Just talk to me about salvation. Well, I just did. And when you begin to understand and unpackage it, it causes you to reflect and wonder that God has saved you. It gives you a depth of appreciation. I mean, it's the difference between watching, you know, a TV that's black and white and one that's in HK, HD, 4D, whatever they call them. Now, I can't even keep up with all the numbers. But you get it. You can watch a movie in black and white, and there's not much depth to it, and it's just the two colors and shades of gray. But here you have the explosion of color and depth and perspective, and you see that in, in contrast between the different TVs that we have today. This is what this does for us in terms of the comprehension and picture that's painted for us so vividly by Jesus Christ himself, which I think is important too, not forgetting the, the context of the passage. And so as we look here, we see here that Jesus is asserting his importance as the revealer of God. Jesus is the revealer of God. This harkens back to verse 25 where Christ, and Christ here is saying in effect, the wise despise me, but they cannot do without me. Through me alone can they attain that knowledge of God which they profess to desire above all things. Building upon the quandary that's presented perhaps in verse 25, at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Christ here reflecting on the fact that those to whom it's revealed is in his control. That's what we're going to see. 
That which they rejected was the only way to know God. They rejected Christ. And this harkens back to the profound truth that Christ would communicate in John 14, 6. I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But through me. You cannot get away from Jesus Christ. He is exclusive, and this is the offensiveness of Christianity, the exclusivity of it. One of the other appalling things in this recent polling data was the idea that somehow God works through other religions. The, the, the wider mercy issue that has crept into the church, that if you're a faithful Hindu, a faithful Buddhist, a faithful Islam, a faithful whatever, God will recognize your faithfulness in the context of that paradigm in which you find yourself, and that will be sufficient because of his quote-unquote wider mercy. Sadly, Billy Graham fell into this error later in his life. Robert Schuller was, a, was promulgated the same false teaching. But what we find here is that's not the case at all. It's only Jesus Christ. Hindus do not believe in Jesus Christ. Buddhists do not believe in Jesus Christ. Muslims do not believe in Jesus Christ. They will not go to heaven as a Hindu. Can a Hindu be saved? Absolutely. Does God save Hindus? Yes, he does. Has he? Yes, he has. Will there be former, former Hindus in heaven? You bet there will be. But there will not be straight-up Hindus in heaven. That will not work. That cannot work. And so what we find here again, friends, and you have to be careful about this, in your communication of the gospel, there is an exclusivity to Jesus Christ that has to be protected. It is Christ alone. It is only Jesus Christ. It must always be Jesus Christ. And so Christ in John 14, 6, of course, he would say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so as in verse 27, we see in John 14, 6, this similar exclusive emphasis on Jesus Christ as not only the means of access, but the controller of the access based on his inclination alone. Based on his inclination alone. And what's interesting to me too is that there's no manipulation. You cannot manipulate this. You cannot alter this, bearing in mind that the statements that are being made are predicated upon the agreement within the triune God to bring about the salvation of those whom God has chosen to save. The specificity of this is amazing. There is a direct correlation between what the triune God has ordained and what Jesus Christ is ultimately doing. He is fulfilling that covenant. This redemption is brought about in agreement amongst the triune God, and Christ is the one who is in control of the revelation as it relates to bringing someone into relationship with the Father through himself. The statement made at the end of verse 27 cannot be any clearer. And I don't know how people get lost on this, but they do. Look what he says. And anyone to whom the Son will, wills to reveal him. Who's in charge? What do we keep finding in Scripture? What do we keep emphasizing in Scripture? 
What do we find in the book of Colossians? Christ is in, ch- in charge. What do we find in the book of Revelation? Christ is in charge. What do we find in Matthew chapter 11? Christ is in charge. Do you see a theme? You getting the message? Christ is in charge. He is not only the means. Think about this for a moment, friends. He is not only the means, but he is the access. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, not a single person in the history of mankind has ever, 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 ever gotten past Christ. No one. So he is the means of the access, and he controls the access. It's interesting, too, that in the context of the language that's being used here is that it's not just to whomsoever he reveals the Father, but to whomsoever he is pleased to reveal him is the implication here. That the, that the purpose and the point is that Christ is fully in control and that nobody manipulates him in the context of how that revelation works. Again, this is a struggle for those who would embrace a free will theology. I'm not sure how you unpackage, you know, how are we going to unpack the pactum salutis, you know? How do you do that? Because that's basically what's happening here. We have, in, in somewhat summary form here, a, a, a covering of that pack, that agreement to bring about salvation. How do, you, how do you do this? How do you unpack it? You can't. You cannot. The Father and the Son intimately connected to each other, purposely working with each other in terms of the fulfillment of the triune God's will and purpose in salvation, the Son then controlling the relationship in regards to salvation and the revelation of it to those. And so what we see here, again, the point being is that is this person who is extending to you an invitation able to save you? Can he truly do it? And the answer is yes. And so we looked in in verse 28 as we move from verse 27. What we know so far is that the Son has and He knows. He's been given authority and He knows. That's what you need in order to be able to do something, to accomplish something. And so that which He has and that which He knows and that which He's been equipped to do, He now offers. And He gives it to those who are in need of what He has which are the weary and the burden that we find in verses 28 through 30. That's you and me. Are you weary and burdened today? This should be a great comfort to you. Look what he says in verse 28. After all of that profound theology, after all of that profound doctrine, the depths of which I haven't even begun to plumb, I could have spent a lot of time, trust me, you know me well, on that last half of verse 27. And we could have plumbed the depths of limited atonement and all particular redemption and all of that stuff. Suffice it to say, it's there. 
as it relates to the purpose and work of Jesus Christ. We'll save that for another day. But moving from that, we move now into this incredibly gentle invitation. This amazing invitation by Christ to come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I like the idea that one of the things we keep in mind as we transition from verse 27 into verse 28, again, going back to this idea of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, um, Again, the great power over everything that concerns our souls is in the hands of Christ. Um, everything has been given to him in that context. We keep we bearing in mind the things that are how Scripture refers to him. He's called the shepherd. He's called the door. He's called the bread. He's called the great physician. He's given all of these names that speak to the idea of the adequacy and what he can do as it relates to our need, our desperate, desperate need. In relationship to our salvation, I think oftentimes people dismiss these passages because they don't see themselves in the desperate state that they are, naturally separated from God. This passage ought to cause us to reflect and to invoke an anthem of praise that, that is really quite profound. We are in this passage, those who have been saved. We are the beneficiaries of what's been communicated and promised here. And it should be a great comfort to us to be reminded. And if you're here today and do, know, do not know Jesus Christ, that it, that's wonderful that I'm glad that you're here. And I'm glad in, in God's sovereign purpose and plan that He has brought you here today. And my words to you are this, listen to the invitation. Listen to what Christ is saying. Listen to the fact that He has offered and is offering to you something that is far greater than you could ever imagine. Peace and comfort that passes all understanding. He's not going to take away your problems. I'm not going to promise you that. He's not going to take away your suffering. That is not promised in Scripture. But He indeed will give you a peace that passes all understanding as you rest in His finished work knowing that the future is secure in Him and Him alone and not in yourself. What more could you want? So we find in verse 28 the invitation the Son has what is required, He knows what is needed, and now He offers and gives it to those who are weary and burdened. Look at John 6.35. John 6.35. We see a similar idea communicated. John here in John 6.35 describing what it means to come to Jesus. Again, the idea being similar to what we find in Matthew. Jesus said to them in John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. I have what you need. 
I have what you need. And he who believes in me will never thirst. I have what you need. I have the capability to meet what is required. Again, that's important for us to keep in mind as we consider the invitation. And so what we understand then is that this invitation is an invitation to come not for the arresting of the lives and the trials of, of life and things of that nature, but to meet a deep spiritual need. It is to come and to believe in Jesus Christ, to come to him in faith. That faith which contains knowledge, assent, and trust. You know who Jesus Christ is. You've been told about what he's done. You assent and acknowledge the fact that you are inadequate in and of yourself, that he has something that you do not have, and you trust in what it is that he has. Looking outside of yourself to him, rather than inwardly to yourself. And I will say to you today that this is a, a, an issue that's becoming more and more problematic within the church, believe it or not. There are people who are moving away from this type of instruction and teaching, and they're, they're talking to people about their own faithfulness, their own righteousness, their own works, in the context of trusting in their works and encouraging them to do more works and to build their trust and confidence in their works. That's wrong. People like Doug Wilson, John Piper, others are taking people down this path, in particular Doug Wilson, so be careful with him. But the idea here is clearly communicated that Jesus Christ is extending an invitation to believe. Come to me, you are hungry. Come to me, you who are thirsty. Place your faith in me. And this faith then, of course, being the gift of the Holy Spirit, as we know from Ephesians chapter 2, will ultimately then produce something. It changes a person, as we know from John chapter 3. It's interesting, though, too, the invitation is extended to the weary, to the burden. There's a particular group of people to whom the invitation is extended. So go back in Matthew again as we return to that particular passage. Bearing in mind, again, the, the, the context is important. Christ identifies specifically the group that he is speaking to. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. You could also read it to mean all those who work to exhaustion. That's interesting. Come to me, all those of you who work to exhaustion and I will give you rest. Now, of course, Christ is not speaking in the physical term here in the, in the context of, you know, working in the field all day to exhaustion, but he's speaking in the context of righteousness, working to righteousness, trying to earn salvation, and doing it to the point of exhaustion, which would have been something profoundly real for the people to whom Christ is speaking. The people to whom Christ is speaking here, the ones that he has in mind, are those who are oppressed by the heavy load of rules and regulations placed upon their shoulders by the scribes and Pharisees of the day, who had imposed upon them numerous traditions and and requirements that became onerous and burdensome to the point of almost being unable to be performed. 
There was a constant stream of modifications, rules, and adjustments that were required of people in order to achieve the righteousness that would place them in heaven. And Christ is speaking to them. And of course, the Pharisees don't like that. The scribes don't like that. But Christ is teasing out the fact that you can't do enough. You can't have enough. You can't earn enough. You can't work hard enough. I don't care how exhausted you are. I don't care how earnest you are in your exhaustion. It's not enough. And so Christ was teasing out the very fact that that which they were being taught by the scribes and the Pharisees was wholly inadequate and contrary to the very message of the gospel. The message is pertinent for today. Many of you today, many people today in evangelicalism are caught in the very same trap. They are trying to work their way into heaven. It's part of them. It's part of Jesus. They add something to, them, to, the, to their lives in the terms of, oh, I'm going to get saved. Jesus is going to kind of help me. But it's still all about me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to add to it. I can do this. I've got this. That's not the case, friend. You don't have it. You'll never have it, ever. Only Christ has it. Only Christ has what you need. And only Christ can ever meet what you need. We know that he's adequate to do that from what we've read. The idea of weariness and burden is so profound for me. The idea of being weighed down, of being burdened down, of being consumed with the task, the obligation. I think we find ourselves there sometimes. We, we fall into the trap of forgetting the very fact that all of this has been taken away from us by Jesus Christ. There's no reason for us to be weary or heavy laden in the context of our salvation. I think many Christians aren't joyful because they have forgotten the very fact that the burden has been taken away. They have no assurance because they're faithing in their faithfulness rather than in the finished work of Jesus Christ. They have no assurance because they keep looking to what they're doing rather than what Christ has done. They have no rest because they keep working to get more in their minds merit from God when all the merit they could possibly have is secured in Jesus Christ. There is no more merit ever. God is not going to say a single solitary thing about your works other than that they were filthy. Ever. So Christ extends this passionate, beautiful invitation Perhaps there's a sense of urgency in it. People who are in despair, living lives of painful uncertainty, clutching at fear, gnawing anxiety, hopeless despair. That's where these people were at. And Christ extends to them this gentle, open invitation, come to me. Come to me. Now, the haughty and the proud are standing off to the side and they're saying, well, look what we've done. Look at our phylacteries. Look at our prayers. Look at our marching through the public square. Look what we do. Look what we do. Look what we do. And we know from verse 25 that those are rejected. But those who come to Christ in humbleness and just simply say, I have nothing left. I, I, I don't have anything. I know that I need something much more than I can ever give. 
much more than I can ever do. And Christ extends this gentle invitation. We have a great story in Scripture of the rich young ruler who would come to Christ and who would have claimed that he had done everything since as a child. What must I do to inherit eternal life, he says. And he claims that he's done all the things that they're supposed to do, and Christ says to him, well, you got more to do. There's more work to do. Go out and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And he goes, wait a minute, what? There's more? You got to keep doing it? Yeah, you got to keep on keeping on. Just like the bumper sticker says. But Christ says here it all ends with him. The rich young ruler was one of these wise and haughty and did not come in humility. He wanted Christ to recognize the quality and the value and the content of his work. He wanted Christ to say, yes, you're the kind of guy I want in my kingdom. You're the guy who's going to be in the front. You're the kind of people that I want, the ones who are working hard, doing it on their own, pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, the guys who can get it done, first in line, always there, ready to go, Johnny on the spot. That's what my kingdom's all about. I want you. You know what? What would happen in most churches today? They'd make him a deacon. Well, well, this is the guy you want, right? Well, he's got it down. He's got it all right. He's doing it. He's, been, he's obeyed all of it since the very beginning, since he was a young kid. He's always obeyed the law. That was his claim. He wanted to do it on his own. Christ sent him away. Dejected, rejected. Christ did not reveal himself to him. Yet here in this invitation, he is going to and does reveal himself to those who come in this humility, this humbleness, this sense of inadequacy. Dear friends, we have to keep in mind that's what this is all about. We cannot earn our salvation. We cannot, we cannot gain anything by what we do or how we do it or why we do it. We simply turn to Christ in simple, sincere faith, understanding your desperate need for a Savior. You cannot achieve salvation by your own exertion, no matter how you try. And all you'll do is is exhaust yourself and, and be discouraged. What is the consequence of this coming? We see in verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I, I want to do something real, real quick. This is kind of fun. Turn with me to Proverbs. Kind of take you on a little rabbit trail here for a minute. So in verse 28, it says, Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And, and we see this really interesting parallel of wisdom's invitation in Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom, of course, being a picture of Christ in Proverbs. Revelation, Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1, Wisdom has built her house, she has hewn out her seven pillars, she has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maidens. She calls from the tops of the heights of the city. 
But look what it says in verse 4. Whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, come eat of my food and drink of the wine I have mixed. Forsake your folly and live and proceed in the way of understanding. In a similar fashion, we see that that Christ here extends an invitation that speaks to the idea of an abandonment of all that you have and and relinquishment of your own self-righteousness and claims to self-worth and those who come, come in a sense of inadequacy and inability on their own. They don't claim anything. They're not haughty. They're not proud. They're not asserting their own rights or inclinations into the mix. The invitation in verse 28 and verse 11 is so gentle and kind, it's generous. It's extended to those who are in desperate need. And the promise is simply this, I will give you rest. How many of you like to rest? How many of you are going to take a nap this afternoon? You see those hands. I know who you are. I'm one of them. We like to rest, don't we? Rest is good. Rest is a gift from God. And rest is a gift from God in the context of salvation, too, because it's rest from the weary, burdensome trials of trying to achieve that which you cannot achieve, your own salvation. He promises to give you rest. Rest. This rest is not only negatively absence from uncertainty, fear, anxiety, and despair, but positively it's about peace of mind and heart, assurance of salvation. That's what's going on here. I will give you rest. Your confidence will be in me. I have done the work. Rest in my finished work. You're tired, you're fatigued, you're exhausted to the point of frustration. You don't know where to go or where to do. Come to me and I will assume the obligation that you're trying to fulfill. I have assumed the obligation that you're trying to fulfill and I will do it perfectly and completely for you and you will perpetually rest in me forever. I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Bearing in mind, too, that he's the only one who can give rest. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And if he chooses to reveal himself to you and you're invited into the context of the rest, you can be guaranteed that rest will never end. You cannot alter that rest. You, you, you don't like being woken up from a nap, do you? Well, you're not going to ever be woken up from this rest. How's that? I mean, I bet you some of you get pretty grouchy when you get woken up from a nap. How dare you enter the inter sanctum of my rest? But this is perpetual rest. Doesn't it feel good to take a good nap and rest? I mean, have you ever taken a nap where you just kind of like you're just passed out to the world? Like, what happened to time? Well, this is what we're talking about here. That kind of rest where it's just complete. It's perfect. It's wonderful. It's like watching a baby sleep. They're just resting, man. They're just, they're just, little Liam sleeps 12 hours. It was just, you know, just, just zonked. Just resting. You know, rest too indicates a relinquishment of control. 
Does it not? How much are you controlling while you're asleep? Not much. The idea here, too, is this resting is a relinquishment of control, a relinquishment of the worries and cares that are attendant with trying to control everything, trying to manipulate everything, trying to make it work, trying to figure it out, trying to, to do what you think is necessary, never quite wondering if you've made the mark or not. Christ says simply this, stop it. Stop it. Just come to me. Come to me. And I, and only I can do it, and I've told you why, I will give you rest. Isn't that beautiful? The gospel is so simple. He, he doesn't even add anything to it. Indeed, what, I mean, I'm not going to go there today because of the time, but he goes on to talk about in the, the passages about the yoke. I mean, there's a whole metaphor here that relates to how people used to carry burdens and the weight of them, that even in the context of what would be traditionally recognized as a heavy, burdensome yoke, that his yoke isn't even like that yoke. That he's not going to stack anything up on his yoke. The yoke is simply a metaphor for connection to that which someone else is carrying someone else is providing the relief he doesn't even put anything on it he's not hanging buckets on it he's he's not going to say okay come to me and here i'm going to put this giant huge oak yoke on your neck and i'm going to hang about 14 bricks on each side and these are all the things that you got to do to keep me loving you to keep, to keep things okay, to keep the rest. He, he doesn't even do that. He, doesn't, he never does that. There, there's no add-ons. It's not salvation plus. It's just Jesus Christ alone. That's it. That's it. That's so simple. Just come to me. Yeah, you're going to be with me. I'll comfort you. I'll keep you. You'll never be separated from me. Nothing can separate you from me ever. Nothing, come what may. Not even the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Because they're my horsemen, by the way. Come to me. I'm not going to add anything to it. The yoke is easy. The rest is perpetual, eternal gentle kind loving merciful great grand awesome sweet utter and complete and it's for all of eternity forever and ever how good is that how good is that will you come to him will you come to him? a simple faith it's not anything else it's not, you don't have to prepare yourself. I'm not going to say there, okay, if you're thinking about getting saved today, I want you to go through right now and ask God to forgive you for every sin you've ever committed before you can do that. No, there's no preparation. There's nothing. You just simply come. You come as you are. Come to me. Just, just come on. You've got them. You've got all your heavy burdens. You've got all your stuff. You've got all your baggage. Just bring it on. Bring it, bring it, bring it, bring it. I got it. Come to me. And I will in no way cast you out. That is the promise of the gospel. 
It's all about Jesus Christ. Now, what are you trusting in right now? I want you to sincerely ask yourself this question. What are you doing with your salvation? As you sit here this morning, right now, you're not here by mistake. God in his good providence brought you here today. You're sitting here to hear this. Now hear me. Think about, I want you to think about your salvation right now. And I want you to think about whether or not it's just about Jesus Christ or is it about you too. Do you think you're a pretty good catch? Do you think you're a decent guy, decent gal? You've got it going. You've got it all together. You're it. I mean, you've got to think God's going to want some part of me. I, I'm, I haven't done anything super bad. I haven't hurt anybody. I didn't kick a cat. I, I haven't lied on my taxes. I haven't done all, all those other things. No, friends, I want you, in your mind, to register whether or not it is simply your faith, be it as small as a mustard seed, that you are trusting in Christ alone. Only, 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 only Jesus. That is it. That's it. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Come to me. What an invitation. Come to me. And I, and only I, can give you rest. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this amazing invitation. We are overwhelmed by it. Thank you for the gentle invitation. Thank you for the ability to provide what is needed. Thank you for taking on all the burden for us. You took care of everything for us. Thank you for that. Thank you for loving us with so great a love. I pray, Lord, that if there are those here today who do not know you, that you would work in their heart at this very moment. Call them to yourself. Reveal yourself to them as you indicate in Scripture. Open their eyes so they may come and have rest in you. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.